Well, last semester we uh, looked at the life of Paul, the really uh, uh, the biographical glimpses that were uh, pretty transparent out of his life uh, in Second Corinthians, and so we, we we sort of helicoptered over Second Corinthians, landing on those on those places where Paul gave us, uh, what was it Dick Schapp used to call it, up close and personal. You really, you really find out what makes somebody tick. Um, I read a biography over the uh, break of uh, Napoleon, and I found, I'd never read anything on Napoleon, found out some interesting things uh, about him. Uh, one of the things that was so interesting about Napoleon, uh, even if you don't know much about Napoleon, you know that uh, Waterloo was where he came to an end and where he was finally defeated. Uh, one of the things about Napoleon that made him so unique on the battlefield as he ranged as far south as Egypt and as far uh, uh, east as Russia and as he was sweeping uh, over the, the nations like no one had ever done since Alexander the Great. One of the things that made him so unique was his ability to read a map. It was almost as though as he was in new territory that he had never stepped in before, that he could look in, at a map and almost see the map in three dimensions and picture. Uh, those who were around him and knew him best said that Napoleon could read more off a map in regard to uncharted territory, he could almost see as much as someone who had lived in that territory all of their lives. It was a unique ability. That's ironic because <clears throat> his defeat, uh, the defining moment that brought him down was at Waterloo and as he was working with his different field marshals, there was one guy that he had never worked with before. He had given him some orders, and the orders basically were for him to contain. There was a contingent of Prussian soldiers, and it was his job to contain them, to pursue them. But this field marshal made two critical mistakes in regard to what Napoleon told him to do. Number one, uh, he ignored Napoleon's order. Uh, that's a pretty bad mistake. But the second mistake that he made was that he got lost. And he couldn't cover the flank. Now, the reason he got lost was this. He was given a map, but he didn't know how to read it. And as a result of his not being able to read a map, something that would be fairly elementary for a field marshal to do. Because of his inability to, to not be able to discern a map, it led to the Prussians going ahead, showing up where they shouldn't have been. Long story short, that was the pivotal moment that caused Napoleon to go down. So the guy who perhaps was able to read more out of a map than anybody else in history as a commander was brought down by a guy who couldn't read one at all. Now that's irony. Uh, every man has defining moments in his life. Every man. 
we like the defining moments that are moments of success. Uh, we like the, the defining moments are ones, the, the ones that where we are able to accomplish something, where we have achieved something, where we have reached a goal. But sometimes uh, the most significant defining moments in our lives uh, are not the times of accomplishment, but the times of failure. One of the reasons God has given us the Scripture, and one of the reasons that God has, has given us the biographies in Scripture of different individuals is that their lives are a map. Their lives are a map which give us a clue as to what we might encounter as we find ourselves on the road of life. Now last fall, we looked at, we looked at Paul. What I want to do beginning tonight is I want us to hone in on Moses. Because Moses is a guy in the Old Testament of whom, if you read his life, if you read the atlas of his life, you get insight, remarkable insight into how it is that God so often works in our lives. I think what happens is we go through life and sometimes we are shocked by where we find ourselves. We are, we are stunned that at this particular point in life we are at this place because we assumed well, this is precisely where we would not be. We thought our lives would look differently at this particular point. You're not the first guy to ever feel that way. You're not the second guy to ever feel that way. I think Paul had times where he felt like that. I, I, I'll be honest with you. Um, you say, well, th this, this sounds very similar to what we did in the fall. And I would say to you, you were very astute. I just want to... What we did in the fall was looked at how God crushes a man and rebuilds a man. Basically, I want to continue the same series. I just want to look at it in the Old Testament, and I want to look at it through Moses. Now, there, there was a defining moment of Moses' life. Moses lived to be 120 years old. And really, what you can do with Moses' life is that you could kind of put it on, I, I want to say three uh, videotapes, but that's really old school now. Um, um, kind of frustrated because on the way here I lost one of my 8-track cartridges. <laughs> I, I'm pretty technologically illiterate and behind the times. Uh, so I guess what I should stay, instead of a video cassette, you could put the life of Moses on three DVDs. How's that? Yes. I, I'm with it and I'm savvy on all this stuff. Um, <clears throat> they would divide up into three chapters of 40 years each. Now, I think there are two uh, huge defining moments in his life. Uh, one was at 40, and the other one was at the age of 80. The one at 40 
was a shock. Uh, the one at 40 was an experience not of great success. And, and we're going to see tonight, Moses was a guy who had tasted success. Moses was a guy who had pretty much had everything go his way. But at the age of 40, he had the rug pulled out from under him. And he was never, uh, literally, he was never the same again because of what happened. Now, God is sovereign over those events in our lives, those defining moments. They don't happen by chance. They don't happen by accident. They, uh, promotions don't happen by accident. Demotions don't happen by accident. Uh, accomplishments don't happen by chance. Uh, God is a sovereign God. He upholds all things by the word of his power. I've quoted R.C. Sproul before because he said it in such a pithy way. He said that in God's universe, there's not one maverick molecule. He controls everything. Everything. He, therefore, he controls the events of my life. He controls the events of your life. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 2, if you would. We'll, we'll look at the first DVD here. And even, even before we go to the defining moment that I alluded to when he was 39, 40-ish, there is a defining moment in chapter 2, verse 1, which is the birth of Moses. God is not over, only sovereign over the fact that we are... Um, existing right now and living right now and functioning and doing what we are doing. Uh, we've got our families, we've got our careers, we've got wh whatever it is your life is all about. He's not only, a, only sovereign over this moment and this day of your life, but the very fact that you came into existence, he is sovereign over that. Chapter 2, verse 1, Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Now, it's a great thing to have a baby. That's a wonderful thing. Great news. <clears throat> but this is interesting because they had this baby. They, they had this little boy. And usually when you have a little boy, what you do now is you take all these digital pictures, and he has his own website, and... <laughs> and then you begin dispersing pictures to all the friends and relatives. Now we're, it's this digital thing, and it's over the Internet. Uh, when, when you have a son, you don't hide it. When you have a son, <clears throat> you announce it. You broadcast it. You want people to know. This is very interesting. They're, they are, hey, they're as thrilled as, as you were when you had your son or your daughter. But they didn't announce it. They hid it. Why did they hide it? Well, because of what we're told in chapter 1 of Exodus. You got a history lesson in Exodus. Um, Genesis ends with the story of Joseph. Um, the account of Moses is happening in Egypt. 
Now the question is, how did the Jews get to Egypt? They got to Egypt because of Joseph. Uh, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. The caravan, the slave caravan, was going to Egypt. And Joseph found himself for the rest of his life in Egypt. Uh, after being demoted in life, after losing his family, uh, you see the sovereign hand on Joseph, and if you know the events of his life, he goes in about 45 minutes from being in a dungeon in the lowest place of all of Egypt uh, to being summoned by Pharaoh, and within an hour, he is second in command to Pharaoh and the second most powerful man on the face of the earth. And the reason that could happen so fast is that he didn't have to face the Senate Judicial Committee. <laughs> Actually, the reason it happened was that God sovereignly... Imagine that, from the lowest place in, his, in, in, in all of Egypt... And within an hour, you're the second most powerful man on the face of the earth. That's how the Jews got to Egypt in the first place. And then eventually, because of the great famine, and he was in charge of administering the seven years of prosperity so that there would be plenty of food during the famine, and then his family, his brothers, uh, they come. Well, you see, Joseph and his brothers, they eventually all became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they come... And they have a subdivision that's been built for them. It's a gated community. It's very nice. It's called Goshen. But they begin to proliferate. And they begin to have a lot of kids. Uh, children are a gift from the Lord, Psalm 127 says. And what happens, they begin to proliferate. And suddenly what's happening is you've got more uh, Jews than you've got Egyptians. And if you look at chapter 1, verse 5, actually verse 8, it says, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Verse 9, he said to his people, so this is a guy long after Joseph. He wasn't even aware of Joseph. He said to his people, behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. So then what be begins to happen is they begin to enslave the people of Israel. And, and it keeps getting worse and worse. They're trying to control these people, but they continue to grow so in verse 15, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. And in 16, here's what he tells them. When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. This guy would have done real well on the Senate Judicial Committee. Because this guy was for killing children. Amazing how that's what this all comes down to, isn't it? It's about... Um, uh, how this nominee would rule on the sacred right to kill a child. That's what all of these uh, 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 reprobates on that committee are so concerned about. And some of them are killers. <laughs> We're getting off to a real good start here this year, aren't we? <laughs> Is that not true? Amen. Well, it just happens to be true. I'm feeling good tonight. <laughs> Funny how history repeats itself, isn't it? Um, so they're told to kill these children. Uh, however, it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives 
feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded him, but let the boys live. Now, it gets worse because the midwives wouldn't cooperate. God, in verse 20, so God was good to the midwives. Why? Because they obeyed God. Do you want to enjoy the blessing of God? Then obey Him. Do you want the discipline of God? Then disobey Him. Which is real simple. Uh, verse 21, Because the midwives feared God, He established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. I mean, it, it was getting bad. Now, it's in that context that a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. That was a real bad time to have a baby. Every once in a while, I'll hear someone say, well, I'd never bring a child into a world like this. Well, then, what kind of world would you bring them into? If you're going to wait till the world gets good to have kids, you'll never have kids. There is never a real good time to have children. Uh, this, especially from a human perspective, was not a real good time to have a child. But you see, when we face issues like this and circumstances, put yourself in their shoes. We've got a baby boy here. This boy is to be killed. And, and that, that is their focus. That is their concern. That is their worry. They probably can't sleep at night. There's probably a lot of anxiety. That's how you'd be feeling. That's how I would be feeling. But you gotta, you gotta pan back. You gotta pull the camera back. We get so focused on the present circumstances that we're dealing with, but there's a sovereign God who's got a plan. He's got something He's gonna do. He's got something in mind that He's gonna do in about 80 years. And then, as a result of doing that, it's going to kick in other things. But in order to do that, in order to pull off the plan that he's got for the entire nation 80 years down the road, he's got to have the leader that's going to lead him. He's got to have him be born at the worst possible time. We get so honed in on our present circumstances, we forget that God has got a lot of other things that he is doing. And he knows our worry, and he knows our concern. But see, our problem is we've got tunnel vision. There are all of these things we don't know. And there are all of these things that he does know. That helps me. I don't have all the information. If I had, number one, I couldn't, I couldn't assimilate it. <clears throat> God doesn't make mistakes. If a baby is born, a baby is born by the sovereign will of God. So Moses is born, and I'll tell you, chance is an amazing thing. Don't you think? What chance can produce? It's because of chance that we evolved. Truly. Truly, it's be, and, and you realize that in California now, the University of California, uh, 
has rendered a decision that they will not accept courses from certain Christian schools that teach in their biology classes that evolution is a theory. Is that not interesting? So the Christian schools in California are taking them to court. Uh, we'll accept this and this and this, but we won't accept that. In other words, if you don't agree with our idiotic, stupid, nonsensical uh, a theory that we teach, uh, we will not grant you entrance into this institution. Just interesting how this is all kind of lines are being drawn, and you see it every day, don't you? You ever heard the term user-friendly? This nation used to be Christian-friendly. That's, that's going by the wayside real quick. <clears throat> So I don't know about you, but I'm not sleeping tonight. I'm worried about that. That was a little joke. <laughs> Do you think this all shocks God? Do you think it worries God? No, not at all. So they have this baby at the worst possible time, and they're hiding this kid. You guys still with me? Yeah. Good. But see, the problem is you can't hide a baby forever. We got somebody over here trying to hide a baby. <laughs> and you can't hide a baby. That baby's already cried. That's great. I'm glad you brought that baby tonight just as an illustration of what I was trying to teach. That's, that's excellent. But when the, that baby just said amen, by the way, I want you to know that. So she hit him for three months. Now catch this. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket, covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. All right, so here's the next phase of the cover-up operation. Take this kid down there, you know, his sister takes him down, and we're going to put him in the reeds and, you know. Verse <clears throat> 4, his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. And once again, the scripture says in verse 5, uh, just by chance, the daughter of Pharaoh. It doesn't say that. It says the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile. Now, does the daughter of Pharaoh have a will? Does she have her own will? Did she say, you know, today I just want to bathe in the privacy of my own master bathroom, but I feel compelled by Almighty God to go down to the river today against my will. God is making me do this? No. Now, let me tell you something. We, we often, when we talk about sovereignty of God and His plan and all this, we immediately go to our will. And, well, how do those two work out? Uh, God's got a plan, yet we have our will. How do those work out? Let me give you the answer to that. We don't know. It's called a mystery. All we know is that both are true. <clears throat> but can I say this to you? God has a plan, and His plan will be accomplished. <clears throat> I remember a professor drawing a huge circle on the board, and he said, this, this is the entire will of God. And then he took uh, just a piece of chalk and he put a dot right in the middle of that circle. He said, that's your will. Your will, your choices, you make them. Nobody makes you make them. You know why you choose what you choose? Because you want to choose them. That's why you choose them. 
You're not made to do that. But your choices and your inclinations and your desires all fit within the bigger will of God. We could say this. The will of God involves certainty without compulsion. Did you catch that? Certainty without compulsion. You know why I married my wife? Because God made me. That's not why I married my wife. You know why I married my wife? Because I wanted to marry her. Now, was that part of God's plan? I believe it was. But it wasn't as though I was saying, no, God, please. No, no, please, not her. But yes, I know it's your will. No, he worked through my desires. I wanted to marry her. That's how it works. It's certain, but without compulsion. So she shows up. She, she just happens that day to go down. And here is his sister. She stood at the distance to find out what would happen. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid. She brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Isn't that interesting that, she, that her heart would go out to this little baby? Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, I, I tell you, you couldn't make this up. You couldn't make it up. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, you, you talk about the right word at the right time. Do you ever, do you ever get concerned about a, a meeting or an appointment that you've got and you've got to, you just can't miss You've got to say the right thing at the right time. And, and nobody gets it right all the time, but you really need to hit a home run in there. I always remember that passage where Jesus said to the disciples that they would be taken up before the authorities. And he told them not to worry because it will be given to you in that hour what you should say. That's what happened here. This little girl, it was given to her in that minute what she should say. Here's this baby discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. She steps up, Miriam does. She says, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. That's all time. They're hiding this kid so the kid won't be killed. What does God do? God arranges it so she gets paid to take care of her own kid. In the house of Pharaoh. So she got, a, she got an IRA, she got a pension plan, the health care. It was all done. God has ways. Did this woman know anybody? Did she have a network? Did she have connections? No, she knew God. And quite frankly, that's all any of us need. Verse 10, the child grew. And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Um. Moses had a remarkable upbringing. Uh, he should have been a slave, but sovereignly by God, 
he was placed uh, into the very household uh, of Pharaoh. Uh, here's, here's what happened to Moses in his early days. Uh, he grew up in the first family of Egypt. He was Pharaoh's grandson. He had wealth. He had the best of everything. He had education. He had opportunity. Uh, when you grow up in that kind of environment, uh, what happens is that when you're, when you're the cream, when you have the best of everything, that tends to foster a very, very high self-esteem, and it tends to foster uh, a, a large amount of self-confidence. Because you speak and people respond. This is how this kid was raised. That's, that's an important point. Uh, so much of how we are raised as kids affect us. You can't get around it. Uh, the way we view ourselves, the way we uh, uh, make decisions in life, we're all products of our backgrounds. Now here's what's interesting. God is sovereign over your background. God is sovereign over your upbringing. God is sovereign over the home in which you were raised. Some of us had very positive homes. Uh, other of us, of us didn't come from real good backgrounds. But even those negatives, God will turn to positives. There's a reason He puts you in that situation and it is all wrapped around what it is that He has for your life. There are all kinds of influences God uses to shape us and to get us ready for what it is that He has for us to do. That's true for every guy in this room. If you don't believe that Moses had a lot of self-esteem and self-confidence, um, verse 11 and 12 will prove it to you. And here is the defining moment. Um, but I got to do something first. I was going to do this after, but I'm going to do it now. Flip over to Acts 7. Go over to Acts 7.22. Because I, I want to give you just a tad more background before we, we do this. Acts 7.22. In, in Acts 7, just prior to becoming the first martyr of the church, Stephen is making a case before the Jewish council. And he has given them a history lesson of the nation of Israel from the Old Testament. Basically says, uh, you know, here are the prophets and here are the men of God that were used. And basically goes on and says, but hey, listen, your father killed all the good guys. And you're just like your fathers. And they didn't like that. And they didn't confirm him. And uh, he was martyred is what happened. It was an inquisition. Uh, in giving them a history, uh, in verse 20, actually in verse 19, actually in 18, he quotes the passage out of Exodus. He says, there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would not expose their infants and would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born. He was lovely in the sight of God. He was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Now catch the advantages that accrued into his life. 
Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power in words and deeds. And when, but when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. Now that's the defining moment that we're going to get to in just a second. The advantages that Moses had because he was sovereignly placed in the first family of Egypt were astounding. Uh, do you notice there that it says, Stephen says that he was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians? Uh, F.B. Meyer said this. He said, since Moses had become a member of the wealthy ruling class, he had access to the best education in Egypt. This was found at the Temple of the Sun. Some historians have referred to this learning center as the Oxford University of the Ancient World. Here a child was trained in a rigorous course of study that included being educated in the reading and writing of hieroglyphic uh, scripts. Moses would have received instruction on Egyptian theology, astronomy, medicine, mathematics, and other subjects in virtually everything that was part of the intellectual domain of the civilized world at that time. That is why the biblical text records that Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. Moses had the equivalent of a PhD from Oxford because of the sovereign place that God had put him in, or the place God had sovereignly put him in, as opposed to being raised in his father's home. Uh, Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, tells us that at a certain point, uh, in the history of Egypt, the Ethiopian army came and conquered the Egyptian city of Memphis. It was Moses who led a surprise attack by leading his men in an all-night march and taking the city of Memphis back from the Ethiopians. And he returned as a great hero. So Moses... In the first 40 years of his life, he was highly educated. He was very capable. He was very confident. He had the best education. He was a military strategist and hero. This guy was a stud. Now, the reason that's so important to understand is what he attempts to do at the age of 39. Highly confident, never really failed at anything, incredibly self-confident, uh, uh, ambitious, and he's not stupid. See, he understands. He looks around, <clears throat> and when everybody gets together for Christmas, which they didn't get together for Christmas, but you understand the illusion here. When they would get together, uh, there was nobody else like him except his mother and his, maybe his sister that hung out at the palace. All of his relatives were over in Goshen, and they were all slaves. He was the only one who wasn't a slave. And it began, he began to figure out that God did not put him in this unique situation as a grandson to Pharaoh, as a military hero, as a guy with all these academic credentials. God did not put him in that position just to make his life easier so that he can enjoy the good things in life. He began to understand, God put me here for a reason. And was that true? It was true. Now keep your one hand in Acts 7, and then let's go back to Exodus 2. Thank you. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up, and if you refer it, it, that passage, if you compare with what Stephen said in Acts 7, 
you find that it's referring to a time when he was approaching the age of 40. All right, so he's 39 years old. It came out in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So he is defending his Hebrew brother against one of his officers, and he, and he murders the Egyptian officer defending the Jewish guy. He looks around, nobody saw what he did. So, so what does he do? He buries the guy in the sand. He went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews. Now here's two Hebrew guys not getting along. They're fighting each other, and he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion?" And the guy says to him, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? He's been found out. Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known, and the matter had become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. This was the absolute last place that he expected to be at that moment in his life. Now, here's, here's what happened here. Really important that you catch this. We all remember Charlton Heston leading the children of Israel uh, out, of, out of Egypt, right? You remember that movie. Okay. <clears throat> he was portraying Moses. Uh, that did occur. Moses had figured out, I'm the guy that God is... Who else can deliver these people? He was right about... He figured out, God has put me here for a reason. He had that nailed. He was just 40 years off on his timing. He tried to pull it off at about the age of 40, but it didn't happen until he was 80. I'll tell you what, he was stunned. If you go back to Acts 7, it tells us what was in his mind. Uh, 724, when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. Now here's where we see what was in his heart. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him but they did not understand. I think a case could be made that for the first time in Moses' life, he tasted failure. See, it was real clear to him. He had a... <clears throat> Have you ever had an experience in your life where you laid everything out and it was just crystal clear to you how it was going to work? And then it didn't? That's where this guy is. And, 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 and it all made sense. Who else has the influence? Who else has the training? Who else has the leadership ability? Who else has contacts inside? Who else has influence? Who else has the ear of Pharaoh? Who else would God... And, and, and see, we do this. We, we do this in... Uh, we, we just do it. It's human nature. We'll see certain situations and we'll start figuring out 
uh, oh, you know, like, right, so we, we got this election coming up, or we've got this or this. Well, it ought to be this guy. It ought to be there. Or the, you understand what I'm saying? We get it all. We always, we've always start putting pieces. This makes sense. And sometimes we're surprised when someone comes out of oblivion and uh, is, is put into a position of prominence. Um, he was shocked by the fact that he, here's what this guy tried to do. He had enough courage and he had enough ambition and he had enough success under him that on his own, he tried to pull off the exodus. That takes a lot of guts. That takes a lot of confidence. And it didn't work. Um, this was a defining moment in the life of Moses. Um, uh, it has been said that the greatest fear of a woman is the fear of being used. The greatest fear of a man is the fear of failing. If, it'd be interesting to know the motivations that drive us as men and how much of what we do is ultimately driven by a fear of failure. We don't want to fail. We abhor failure. We do whatever we can to avoid it. We, nobody wants to fail. Nobody. But failure is oftentimes the very thing, the very pivot that God uses in our lives to get us ready for what it is that he wants to do in our lives. The, the last thing we would want. God is the God. He's the great God of irony. He, he, he's the... Uh, You know, Christianity is all about resurrection. It's all about resurrection. But here's the deal. Before you can have resurrection, you've got to have a death. Don't you? Um, it, it's been said, it's, it's been said that, uh, and I'll tell you who said it. My son Josh said this to me. He said, he said a lot of people have a fear of dying. But he said, I think, Dad, the greatest fear is not of dying. The greatest fear is dying to yourself. I think he's right. Because, you see, we've got our plans, we've got our dreams, we've got our hopes, we've got our goals. Um, the start of the new year, you probably put down some goals. Uh, maybe you put down some, uh, a one-year goal or a three-year goal or you make projections. I'll, so we, we have it the way we'd like it to turn out. And, and we are very appreciative and grateful when it turns out that way. But when it doesn't, it can be devastating. This is what happened to Moses. I, I will tell you that when it says in verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. I, I, and Moses was on the run. I think he was absolutely stunned by what had happened. Uh, if you played football, did you ever get blindsided, ever? Um, I remember on a kickoff one time, I'm running down, and I got a bead on this kid. And, and I'm, heading him, I'm heading him to that sideline, 
And there's nobody else that's going to get him except me. And I mean, I was going to nail this sucker. I had him in on my sights. And I mean, it was perfect. It was perfect. Uh, it, was, it was just one of those moments that you pray for to, to just behead your opponent. Uh, in Christian love, of course. I had this kid zeroed in, and I was going to get him before we got to that sideline. And I'm just, I'm just stroking down there. Got him in my sights. And the next thing I know, it, it was almost slow motion. But I suddenly am just tossing and, and turning and... Uh, Somebody blindsided me. I mean, just nailed me. And I, I'm just flying through the air. And my moment of glory was over. <laughs> and I hit so hard on my tailbone that I still, still, on a regular basis, feel it from time to time. Since that day, I, I have always, there's a certain spot. I mean, and it all came from that blindside. That was the last thing in my mind. I, I, could hear the, I, I could hear the crowd cheering. I could hear the coach pat me on the back. I, I, I was tasting victory. And I got nailed. That's what happened to Moses. Now that's what's happened to every guy in this room. Now here's the thing about the Lord. When we, got, when we get blindsided, God's sovereign over that event in your life. And what he is going to do through that event is that he is going to develop you. He is going to shape you. He is going to redirect you. And, and here's the thing about it. None of us want that. None of us want it. Because we are so focused on our plan and on our desire, and what we want our lives to look like. When, when it says that Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down, sat down by a well, here was a, here was a man who was totally and completely defeated. Absolutely stunned by what had happened to his life. Some of you guys are stunned by what's happened to you in life. You never imagined the set of circumstances that you're in, you would be in. But you're there. But you're there by the sovereign hand of a God who doesn't make mistakes. He just has a different plan than you can see. Interesting that Les made the comment about faith. It's just not, it's just not blind faith. Where is our faith? Our faith is in a God who is sovereign over all things, even, even the worst of things that happen to us. Um, here's a problem. Here's a problem. Our problem is this. Um, you've been gifted by God 
Everybody in here has different strengths and abilities. Everybody in here has uh, different aptitudes. But you have been given some equipment. Uh, you have been given some factory equipment. Uh, when God created you, He hardwired you with strengths and with weaknesses. Everybody in here is good at something. You're, uh, you, you've got aptitudes, you've got strengths, you've got abilities, and it's different for everybody, and God oversees that. There are certain things you can't do. You know why you can't do those? Because God didn't wire you to do them. For what it is that He has for you to do, He has given you the equipment that you're going to need to fulfill your purpose. And He put that in you when He was fashioning you in your mother's womb, as Psalm 139 says. But, but here's what happens. We tend to get focused as we go through life and we begin to figure out what it is we can do so often because we are capable and because we have had some success and because we have some aptitudes, what happens is we begin to trust in those strengths. And what can happen is we can develop an unhealthy self-confidence. Well, how do you know when you cross the line into an unhealthy self-confidence? I want my... I mean, my kids are all in their 20s now, but I want to raise them. I didn't want my kids to be walking around sloped down, you know, wouldn't make eye contact with you. You want your kids to be confident and self-assured, don't you? Sure you do, if you're a good father. Uh, you want them to know who they are. You, you, you want them to have a healthy perspective on who they are in terms of who God is. They're created for a purpose. You, you don't want to pull the plug and, and so they've got terrible esteem issues all their life because they were never validated and encouraged by their father. You guys know what I'm talking about. But what can happen is this. What can happen is we can cross the line into an unhealthy self-confidence. Now, how do you know when you cross the line into an unhealthy self-confidence? That is when you begin to get uh, arrogant. That's, begin, that's when you begin to uh, uh, get hard to live with. That's when you begin to expect certain things. That's when you begin, and, and you're smart enough to kind of cover it as best you can, but you get a little bit cocky. One of the key symptoms of knowing that you're in an unhealthy self-confidence state of mind is prayerlessness. You don't pray. You know why you don't pray? Because you're so cotton-picking good at what you do. You just don't pray. I wonder what Moses' prayer life was like the first 39 years of his life. Actually, we get a hint. Did you note verse 12 of Exodus 2? He sees the Egyptian guy beating up the Jewish guy. Verse 12. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Years ago, I heard a tape of a series that Chuck did covering this passage. And here's what Chuck said. I was going to steal it, but you'd find out about it. <laughs> here's what Chuck said. As he's teaching, he said, look at, look at, look at, look at me. 
So the audience obviously looks up. He said, he looked this way and that way. But he never looked this way. That's the sign of a guy who's had too much go his way. That's the sign of a guy who's got an unhealthy self-confidence. That's the sign, catch this, of a guy who God will not use. What does that guy need to taste? That guy needs to taste some disappointment. That guy needs to have a setback. That guy needs to be shocked and stunned. And that guy needs to be taught that apart from me, you can do nothing. That's why these things happen in our lives. Next week, we'll take the next 40 years. Actually, the description of the next 40 years are very, very brief. You know why it's brief? Because there's really nothing to tell. Nothing exciting happened. No accomplishments. He just existed. Uh, uh, the next 40 years in this guy's life, it's nothing but drought. Absolute drought. No fruit, no achievements, no accomplishments. He becomes completely drained of self-confidence. Why? Because God wants to use him. Maybe that's where some of you guys are. And see, when you're in that state of mind and in that state of life where Moses is, you think, do you not think that Moses thought his best days were behind him? You know he did. Well, that's what some of you guys think. And you're wrong. You're just in a process. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these men whose lives are recorded in the Scripture. They are there for a reason. They are there to instruct us. We're so busy with the affairs of life and with just doing life, uh, paying bills and going to meetings and fulfilling our responsibilities and getting the oil in our car changed and just, just the stuff that has to be done that we, we get so busy that we rarely have time to think deeply. I pray that as we do this study, you will enable us to think deeply about what it is you're doing in our lives at this particular place that we find ourselves in. And I pray that we might gain hope that you have not abandoned us, that you have not forgotten us. You are simply rebuilding and reshaping. And it may not fit into what we imagined, but it's what you had in your mind from before you created time. 
So help us to rest and help us to relax that you're going to do the work in our lives just as you did the work in his life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.